I don't know about you, that last song was just awesome. Wasn't that just tremendous? That was great. I can't sing, but if I could, that's exactly how I would have done it right there. It was fabulous. So I want to welcome those who are watching online and those here in the building with us. I want to wish all of you a Merry Christmas. So let's just get it started on a good note, or maybe not so good. How many of you have already finished your Christmas shopping? Just hold your hand up. I keep, you, keep them up. The rest of us, would you just boo them right now? Just a big boo. Okay. Well, I haven't. I'm not close, but I'm glad that you have. Many years ago, before Western countries passed laws banning unjust human experimentation, there were some French scientists that did something that even to this day when I read about it, I just can't believe that they did it. There was a criminal that had been sentenced to death, and so without his consent, they decided they would do an experiment on this guy. So they blindfolded him, they strapped him to a table, and they said, this is the way we're going to put you to death. We're going to slice your arm open, we're going to cut an artery, and you're going to bleed to death in a matter of minutes. Well, they proceeded with the experiment. They blindfolded him, put him on a table, except they didn't cut his arm, they didn't cut an artery. They made a superficial, non-lethal incision on the surface of the man's skin. It didn't even break the skin. It didn't even cause any blood at all. But they didn't tell him that. And then they poured warm water over his arm, which he thought was his blood. That man died in three minutes. Humans can survive anything except losing hope. When you lose all hope, life is over. And this man was convinced for him there was no hope. It's been said that we can live 40 days without food. We can live about three days without water. We can live about eight minutes without air, but not even a second without hope. Hope, in a way, is everything. And frankly, if you're like me, you've lived long enough, you've been in situations at times where you felt not just helpless, but hopeless. I guarantee you right now, either in this room or looking at me right now through a television screen or, or telephone or an iPad, there's some of you right now, you feel like you are absolutely in a hopeless marriage. You see no light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe your finances are in such a royal mess that you are hopeless that you'll ever recover and get out of the hole. Or maybe you've been looking for a job and you've gone to interview after interview after interview and you finally have come to the point where you just feel hopeless you won't ever get a job. What we're doing, if you're joining us for the first time, is a series that I've entitled All I Want for Christmas. And I'm exploring three things that, frankly, probably were not on your Christmas list. You probably never thought about them. But here's the reason why you ought to put them on your Christmas list every year. They ought to be there. Number one, they perfectly fit. All, one size fits all. They will never, ever let you down. You'll never want to exchange them for anything else. You'll never want them to take them back. In fact, these are the only gifts that really keep on giving. Now, if you missed last week, I told you that the first gift, that I, the first thing I want for Christmas is a redeeming faith. Not just any ordinary one-of-the-mill kind of faith. I mean a redeeming faith, a real faith. Not a faith of the head, but a faith of the heart. Not a faith that just says, oh, yeah, I believe in God, or even I believe in Jesus. I'm talking about a faith that connects you to God, 
A faith that radically changes your life. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you live. It changes your outlook on life. That was our first gift, a redeeming faith. Well, the second gift I want you to put on your list is what I call a resilient hope. That's the second thing I want for Christmas. I want a resilient hope. And if you brought a copy of the New Testament or a copy of the Bible, I want you to turn to a book. It's toward the back of the Bible. It's called Titus, T-I-T-U-S. It's kind of toward the back, close to the book of Revelation. In the second chapter of that book, Titus, who was a protege of the Apostle Paul, he tells us where we can safely place our hope, where we can put our hope where we know that hope will be real. Now, you may be skeptical. You may think to yourself, nope, nope, I've heard this before. Many of us have put our hope in, in things that we know didn't work out. You put your faith in the stock market, it can crash. You put your faith in a marriage, it falls apart. You put your faith in a political party, and they break their promises. Or you put your faith in a political candidate, and he either doesn't win election or he doesn't get reelected. We all know what it's like to put our faith in people who make promises, but they break promises. There are people right now in the hospital, they have put their hope in doctors and medicine, but they're going to die. We all know what it's like to put our hope in things and people and places that disappoint. Well, let me just give you some good news. That is not the kind of hope I want to talk about this morning. I'm talking about the kind of hope that the Bible talks about, and that's not the kind of hope that the Bible speaks of. For example, in the Bible, the word hope doesn't mean, well, maybe. So a farmer says one day, well, I hope it rains. Well, maybe it will. Maybe it won't. I hope this year that Georgia wins a national championship. <laughs> they may. They may not. If they don't, I may continue to pastor this church. I may quit. <laughs> Never know. When I asked Teresa to marry me, she told me to wait. She wasn't sure. She wasn't sure she loved me. Days turned into weeks. And every day, I'm hoping she would say yes, knowing maybe she will, maybe she won't. That is not the kind of hope the Bible talks about. That is not the kind of hope I want to talk about. The kind of hope that I'm talking about is not a maybe kind of hope. It's a certainty kind of hope. It's not a possibly kind of hope, even a probably kind of hope. It is a surety kind of hope. You say, how can you be so sure? Because the certainty, the hope that I'm talking about, it's not based on a feeling. I feel like it's going to work out. It's not based on an optimistic intuition. Well, the glass is half full. It's not half empty. The kind of hope I want to talk about is a sound assurance in your heart that because of what God has said, it will happen. It's going to take place. My hope will not be disappointed. And what Titus does for us is he gives, does us a big favor. Titus says, I want to give you three things you can put your hope in. That I guarantee you, if you'll put your hope in these three things, the seed of that hope will bear fruit. And you will never be disappointed. Let me give them to you this morning. First of all, put your hope in the saving grace of Jesus. If you want to put your hope where it will never fail, never be disappointed, 
Put your hope in the saving grace of Jesus. Now, in 12 words, Paul makes a statement about both grace and God that really pretty much sums up the message of the whole Bible. If you don't know much about the Bible, you've not read the Bible very much, and one of the reasons why is you say, you don't have to think the Bible's a hard book, it's a difficult book, it's hard hard to understand. I will agree with you, because I've read the Bible through many times, there are parts of the Bible that are very difficult to understand. In fact, there are parts of the Bible I still don't understand. But the message of the Bible as a whole is very easy to understand. Here it is basically in one sentence. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. If you want to know the story of the Bible, if you want to know the central message of the Bible, there it is. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Years ago, there was a British conference on comparative religion. And, they were, and there were scholars that came from all over the world. And they were debating about what was unique to the Christian faith. What is it that makes Christianity different from every other religion and every other faith in the world? Well, they were having this big debate. And so somebody suggested, well, maybe it's the incarnation. And other people pointed out, well, no. There are other religions who also claim to have gods that appeared in human form. And then somebody says, well, well what about the resurrection? And then somebody pointed out, well, no, there are other religions and other faiths that tell stories of people who returned from the dead. Now, they went on to die again, but at least they came back from the dead. Well, the debate debate really got fully, really heated. It wasn't going anywhere. They weren't making any progress. And about that time, C.S. Lewis walked into the room. And all the eyes turned to Dr. Lewis. And one man said, Dr. Lewis, can you tell us what it is that separates the Christian faith from every other faith. And C.S. Lewis said, and I think he was right, he said, that's easy. Grace. Grace is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Now, you've heard it said many times before. If you haven't heard it, maybe for the first time, you need to hear it. What is grace? Grace is, this is real easy. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. That's grace. God gives us what we don't deserve. Now, I've told you before, God can deal with you in one of three ways, right? For, first of all, for, for example, God can deal with you according to justice. Well, what is justice? Well, justice is when God gives you what you deserve. And I've heard people say to me that when I, I've, I've actually shared the gospel with people, and they say, yeah, I, I don't need Jesus. I just want God to give me when I'm done what I deserve. You know what I would say? No, you don't. You really don't. But God can deal with you that way. The second way that God can deal with you is mercy. Now, justice is when God gives you what you do deserve. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you deserve. And God sometimes does deal with us with that way, and we thank God for it. But the way we get to God and the way God gets to us is through grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. Now, here's what Paul said about this grace. He said, this grace has appeared. What does he mean? When did it appear, and where did it appear? That word appear is a very interesting word. In the Greek language, it's the word that gives us the word epiphany. You, you know what an epiphany is, right? It's kind of a, a, all of a sudden, you, it's like being in a pitch dark room for two hours, and somebody comes on and flips the switch. The light comes on. That's an epiphany. And epiphany is when you finally realize, oh, now I get it. Now I understand it. That's what that word means. Well, what's Paul referring to? Believe it or not, he's talking about the very first Christmas. That word epiphany means glorious appearing. He's talking about that little baby that was born in Bethlehem. That's when God's grace 
first appeared in those swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, wasn't just the Son of God. It was the grace of God. Then he says, it has appeared to everybody. In other words, he says, look, this grace is not only available to everybody, this grace is acceptable. And it, it, it is, it is uh, uh, accessible to everybody. But it only comes through Jesus. You don't find God's grace in Muhammad. You don't find God's grace in Buddha. You don't find God's grace in Confucius. You don't find God's grace through a pastor or through a priest or through a pope. It only comes through Jesus, and let me tell you why. Remember what I told you grace is, right? Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Well, time out, there's a problem. But this Bible also teaches us that we are all sinners. We've all broken God's law. We've all broken God's commands. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all have done things we shouldn't have done. We've all not done things we should have done. So we have all blown it. So we all deserve God's judgment. So if I deserve God's judgment, and God is just, and God is a just judge, and God can't let sin go unpunished, how can God give me what I don't deserve? The answer is very easy. God can give us what we don't deserve because on the cross, Jesus took what we did deserve. God can give me what I don't deserve because on the cross, Jesus took what I did deserve. That's why people don't understand. Grace is free. But grace is not cheap. It costs God the blood of his son to pay for our sins, but he not only paid for our sins, Paul says he paid for our salvation. Because contrary to most thinking, and this is where people don't get it even at Christmas. You know, and I, and I say this with all respect to wonderful, precious Santa Claus. He has nothing to do with whether you're naughty or nice because according to the Bible, we're all naughty. We were born naughty. And without Jesus, we will die naughty. Our relationship with God is not based on our goodness. It's based on His grace. And every part of our life is based on God's grace. Let me tell you something. You've got lungs that are breathing and mouths that are speaking and hands that are feeling and eyes that are seeing and ears that are hearing, and legs that are walking for one reason, the grace of God. Can you say amen to that? The grace of God. That's the only reason you got here today, by the grace of God. And see, God's grace delivers the one thing we all need, which is salvation. And he says this, this grace, he says, has appeared to all people. That's why I love being a preacher. That's why I love being a messenger of the gospel. Because I can go to anybody, anytime, anywhere. Doesn't matter. You're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're an independent. I don't care. You're black, white, or brown. I don't care. You're rich or poor. I don't care. You're a liberal or conservative. I don't care. You're a Georgia fan or a Gator fan. I almost care. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are, what your last name is, where you were born, where you're from. It doesn't even what you've done. The grace of God is available to you. And the grace of God is accessible to you. And if you put your hope, here's what uh, Titus says, if you will put your hope in the saving grace of Jesus, not a pastor, not a priest, not a pope, not your performance, not your goodness, if you will put your hope in the saving grace of God, you will never be disappointed. Number two, he says, not only should you put your hope in the saving grace of Jesus, 
But Titus also says you ought to put your hope in the sanctifying power of Jesus. Now, here's what you're about to read, and this is going to be a shock to some of you. It's going to really be a shock to your system. When you take hold of the grace of God, here's how you'll know you have. When you've really taken hold of the grace of God, the grace of God will take hold of you. Let me give you an illustration. How many of you have ever accidentally or whatever, maybe out on a farm or something, how many of you have ever touched something that was electrified and it got a shock? Did anybody have to tell you that? No, the moment you, sh boom, you knew I've touched something that's electrified. You know you've taken hold of the grace of God when the grace of God has taken hold of you. It's radically changed you because God's grace, Titus is about to tell us, God's grace is not just saving grace. It's not, it's not just fire insurance. He said God's grace is transforming grace. It's not just redeeming grace. It is reforming grace. It is sanctifying grace. So by the way, don't be afraid of that word sanctify. So let me tell you kids who are in this room, so let me tell you what the word sanctify means. It's a big word, but it's not really hard to understand. That word sanctify means to make pure. It, it means to make clean. It makes, means to make holy. In other words, grace is more just than pardon for what you've done wrong in the past. Grace is also the power to make you do what's right in the present. So look at what Paul says grace does. Watch this. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I had a man call me the other day. I was his pastor in the former church where I used to pastor. Hadn't seen this guy, hadn't talked to this guy in probably 25 years. His father was the head coach at a major college in the SEC. He called me, hadn't seen him in a long time. He's got a, a girl, a daughter, and she is a prodigal daughter. She is wayward, she is gone. I mean, she is really off the beaten path. And so we got to talking, and he was asking me, how do you deal with that? Tell me, I, I need some advice. And I said, well, here's what I would say. To, I said, does your daughter profess to be a believer? He said, well, yeah, she said she made a decision. She said she gave her heart to Jesus. I'd say, okay. I'd say, I would ask her two questions. Tell me what you mean when you say you've trusted Jesus. Tell me what happened. Tell me what you did. And then I said, no matter what she tells you, just ask her one more question. How are you sleeping at night? Because if she says to you, I sleep like a baby, I would say to her, you've never experienced Jesus. Let me tell you why. Some of you won't like what I just said, but listen to me. The big thing people love to say is this to everybody out there, no matter what kind of lifestyle you are, hey, God loves you and accepts you just the way you are. I agree with that. God loves you, and he will accept you just the way you are. But, he loves you too much to let you stay that way. He doesn't let the prodigal stay in the pig pen. That doesn't happen. He says to the woman caught in adultery, I forgive you. Where are your condemners? They're gone. But go and what? Sin no more. God loves you just the way you are. He accepts you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to let you stay that way. See, grace doesn't lower the bar. Grace raises the bar. And then it gives you the power to lift you over the bar. So to put it simply, here's what Titus says grace does. Grace gives you the power to say no to what's bad for you and the power to say yes to what is good for you. And see, when you give your life to Jesus and you experience the grace of God, here's what God does. God doesn't take you out of this world. 
God continues to let you live in this world. He leaves you in this world. But now watch this. Even though God leaves us in this world, we are not to live like this world. And we're not to live for this world. Yeah, I live in the world every day, just like you. But by the grace of God, I am not going to live like this world. And for the grace, by the grace of God, I'm not going to live for this world. I got a book in the mail this week about grace. I got a book this week. I ordered about grace. The person that wrote this book is living with someone they're not even married to. And if they wrote a book about grace. Well, grace leads to godliness. It's not, listen, if, if grace is cheap, it's counterfeit. It's not the real thing. So, you know, we always have the same struggles, right? If you're like me, I struggle not to do what I know is wrong. I struggle to do what I know is right. But what Titus says is this, when the grace of God takes over your heart, here's what the grace of God does. He infuses your life and he does two things. First of all, he gives you the power to say no to what's wrong. Here's what Paul said. If Titus said, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, there's no fine print in that contract. There's no equivocation. There's no um, uh, qualification. There's no stammer. There's no stutter. Paul said, or Titus says, if you've experienced the grace of God, anything that's ungodly, anything that's unbiblical, anything that's unholy, anything that is unprofitable, you will say no, I'm not doing that. But grace not only gives you the power to say no to what is wrong, he says it gives you the power to say yes to what's right. He says it gives you the power to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In other words, he said, look, grace doesn't give you the license to live the way you want to live. It gives you the liberty to live the way you ought to live. It doesn't give you the right to just do whatever you want to do and say what you want to say and go where you want to go. It gives you the power to go where he wants you to go and do what he wants you to do. So I'm going to say this as plainly as I can so you'll truly understand it. Grace is not just what you say you have. Oh, I, I've got the grace of God. Yeah, grace of God's in my life. It doesn't, it's not what you say you have. Grace is what you show you have. You will show amazing grace. See, grace is not just the power of salvation that God puts into you. Grace is also the power of the proof of salvation that God pulls out of you. See, a lot of people get hung up on this, uh, I, you know, I call it a no-so salvation. And I hear people say, oh, I, I know I'm saved. How do you know you're saved? Well, I know I'm saved because I made a decision. Or I know I'm saved because I got baptized. Or I know I was saved because I, I filled out this card. Or I know I was saved because I walked down the front of a church. Or I know I was saved because I believe in Jesus. Can I just be honest? Yes, we ought to have a no-so salvation. I have a no-so salvation. But we ought to be as equally concerned that we have a show-so salvation. That people look at us and the way we live, and the way we conduct our lives, and the way we handle our finances, and the way we parent our children, and the way we work in our marriage, and the way we relate to our neighbors and say, you know, there's something different about that person because the root of salvation is grace, but the fruit of salvation is godliness. Here's what Titus says. You place your hope in the, in the saving grace of Jesus, you will not be disappointed. But then you put your hope in the sanctifying power of Jesus. You will not be disappointed. 
I would never want to even take the chance of standing before a holy God and have that God say to me, so why should I let you into heaven? Well, I was baptized. I filled out a card. I made a decision. I believed in Jesus. Well, why didn't you live like it? And why didn't you show it? I believe my hope is in the saving power of Jesus. My hope is in the sanctifying power of Jesus. But then he says one last thing. He says, place your hope in the second coming of Jesus. Place your hope in the second coming of Jesus. Now, let me just say something about hope before we get in this last part. By its very nature, hope doesn't look to the past, right? You don't hope for the past. Past is gone. It's done. And in a real sense, hope doesn't really operate in the present because it's already here. You don't have to hope for this, you know, this moment. The moment is here. Hope primarily is about looking to the future. It's about anticipating. It's about expecting something that hasn't happened, but you believe it's going to happen. So at the end of the day, hope is really about not the end of the day, but the start of tomorrow. Hope is not about yesterday. Hope's really not about today. Hope is about tomorrow. And that's why I want to tell you that today that the best hope you'll ever have, the hope I want to give you this morning, the best hope is a Bible hope. Because Titus says, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The president doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Wall Street doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Harvard doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Hollywood doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Titus said, I know one thing that is going to happen on some tomorrow. He says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that word wait is a beautiful word in the English language. It doesn't just mean like to wait around like you're tapping your toes. It means to wait expectantly, to wait with anticipation. It means to wait like an eight-year-old child waits on Christmas Eve when they make him go to bed. And he wants to stay up to watch for Santa Claus under that tree. And you toss and you turn and you think it will never get here. And for the first time in that eight-year-old kid's life, he doesn't want to sleep till 10 in the morning. He wants to get you up at four in the morning. It's that anticipation. It's that expectation. I know he is going to come. You wait expectantly. For example, you go to a football game. There's this anticipation. There's this ex expectation for the kickoff. You can't wait for kickoff. You know the game has started. As we now know, you know, every year, once a week or once a year, there, there's, this, there's this one Friday everybody anticipates called Black Friday. You know why it's called Black? Because people spend more than they have and they'll never pay it off. Okay. They wait on Black Friday. I, I was out of town. I was out of the country when the Braves won the World Series. But I taped it. So when I got home, I watched the last game of the World Series. Now, I already knew how it was going to turn out. But you know what? I found myself on the edge of the seat. You know, I knew it was going to happen. Waiting for that last out. Expecting that last out. I broke out into joy when they got the last out. That's what Titus means when he says, we ought to put our hope in the second coming of Jesus. It's not a maybe hope. Not a possible hope. Not a probable hope. It is the certain hope that just like Jesus came the first time, he is going to come the second time. But with that anticipation comes the determination. Until you come, 
I want to live for you. Until you come, I want to live like you. And when you come, I'm going to live with you. That's the kind of hope I'm talking about. One of the best illustrations I read about that kind of hope, I read this the other day. There was this little boy, and he was in a mall. And he was standing at the foot of an escalator that was going up to the second floor. Well, this kid was standing there, and he just kept his eyes on that handrail. And the handrail just kept going, you know, around and around and around and around, over and over and over and over. And he never took his eyes off that handrail. And this man was watching this little kid, and he thought, man, something must be wrong. So he walked over to that kid, and he said, hey, son, he said, are you lost? He said, no, I'm not lost. I'm just waiting for my chewing gum to come back. Now... Let me tell you something. There's one thing more certain than the S-U-N coming up in the east tomorrow. There's something more certain than that. One day, the S-O-N is coming back in a cloud. He is coming back. He is coming again. Because you see, there are two appearances in this passage of Scripture. There was the appearance of God's grace. That happened in Bethlehem. But then there's the appearance of God's glory. That's going to happen in a cloud. Now, both appearances are talking about Jesus. The grace that appeared was at his first coming. The glory that will appear is at his second coming. That's why there are two things we all better be ready for every single day of our life, either our death or his coming. Because one day, both of those will come unless the coming comes first. That's why I tell you, we really ought to always live in almost breathless anticipation of that day. Have you ever stopped just to think, just put everything aside, forget about all the worries and all the cares and all the problems that we've got. We all have got them. We've all got conflict. We've all got things that are not working for us that we wish they were. I get all of that. Let's put all that aside for a moment. Have you ever just stopped and said, let's just think about what will happen? What will happen the moment Jesus comes back? Think about it. For the first time since two people in a garden blew it, for the first time, when he comes back, everything is going to be right. Everything's going to, every wrong's going to be made right. Everything's going to be right where it belongs. Think about this. The moment that Jesus comes back, the church will will, will be where it belongs, in heaven with Jesus. The devil will be right where he belongs in hell without Jesus. And Jesus will be right where he belongs on the throne of the entire universe. And that's why all I want for Christmas, I want a redeeming faith that really gets me to God. But I want a redeeming, resilient hope in this Christmas baby. You know, I thought about this this morning. I was coming to church. The world hopes for the best, but Jesus is the world's best hope. The world hopes for the best, but Jesus is the world's best hope. Yes, we ought to pray for every political party and every political leader. Yes, we ought to pray for the president and the speaker of the house and the leader of the Senate. 
We ought to pray for our congressmen. We ought to pray for our senators. We ought to pray for our mayors. We ought to pray for everyone who's at any place of leadership. But I want to say it one more time. You better not put your hope in any of those things or all of those things. The only hope is Jesus. There is no other hope. Any other hope, given enough time, it will disappoint you. But Jesus Christ is not just the world's best hope. He is the world's only hope. Because when this baby that was born in Bethlehem comes back to earth, it will be the moment everything will be made right. Every old thing will be made new. Death and disease will be destroyed forever. And guess what? We will never have to hope for anything ever, ever again. So when you see, hopefully, why I want this for Christmas, and in case you don't, let me just make it clear one last time. Why do I want a resilient hope for Christmas? Here's why. Because when you put your hope in the saving grace of Jesus, you can let go of the past permanently because grace replaces guilt. When you put your hope in the sanctifying power of Jesus, you can live in the present victoriously. You have victory, not defeat. And when you put your hope in the second coming of Jesus, you can look to the future confidently because optimism replaces pessimism. Martin Luther, the great saint, had a calendar. And a man happened to see his calendar one day, and he said, Martin, that's the most unusual calendar I've ever seen. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, I've, I've kind of looked through your calendar, and you only have two days marked on that calendar. Martin Luther said, that's correct. You know what two days he had? Two days on his calendar. Today and that day. Today and that day. See, because of Jesus, we don't just have hope for today. We've got hope for every day until that day when the hope of all God's people will finally, permanently, joyfully, victoriously, sweetly, graciously be fulfilled. All I want for Christmas is that resilient hope. Would you pray with me right now with his bowed, with eyes closed? You know, I have a hope in, in, in the right sense that I'm going to heaven. But it's not a, well, I hope, but I may or may not. No, I'm going. It's a certain hope. Because I have placed my hope in the saving grace of Jesus. I did that was a nine-year-old boy. But I've learned through the years when I got that grace of Jesus, that grace got a hold of me. And it's not that I don't sin anymore. Can I be honest? I'm like you. I sin every day of my life. But I'll tell you this. I don't sin because I have to. And I certainly don't sin because I want to. Because grace changed me. And it's also why, as the older I get, as the years continue to pass, I place my hope in the one that came the first time. He's going to come the second time. Here's my simple question. Where are you placing your hope today? If you've placed your hope in anything or anybody other than Jesus, I'm going to tell you right now, you are going to be disappointed. And if you've never placed your hope in Jesus, if you've never had that real redeeming faith, if you know, look at your life, just look at your life. Have you truly trusted Christ? If there's been no difference in your life since you trusted Christ, you haven't really trusted Christ. So today, if you'd like to say, you know, I want to nail that down, or I want to get that right, I want to get that straight, I want to take hold of the grace of God, and I want the grace of God to take hold of me. 
then would you just tell Jesus that right now? Would you just say, Lord Jesus, I believe you came the first time. I believe you died for my sins. I believe God raised you from the dead. I am a sinner and I need a Savior. Would you become my Savior today? I accept your grace today. I accept your free, full forgiveness of all of my sins. And now, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and change me. I don't ever want to be the same again. And Lord, you made a promise that you have always kept. If I did what I just said I did, you'll do what you said you would do, and you saved me. And I repent and turn away from my sins, and I thank you for saving me today. Now, you prayed that prayer? Yes, Pastor, I did. Did you mean it? Yes, Pastor, I did. Well, we'll see. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. When this service is over, you walk out into the lobby, there's a table in the middle of the lobby called Connection Point. I want you to go to that table. There'll be people waiting on you, and all you have to say is this, I accepted God's grace today. I put my real faith in Jesus today. Something like that's it. You won't say anything else. They'll know what you need. They'll know what materials they need to give you. They'll help you take that next step now with God. Because remember, salvation is the first step. There's more than one step to Christianity. When you give your heart to Jesus, that's not the end. That's just the beginning. By the way, you know what the second step is, right? It's baptism. Baptism. That's the, first, that's the second step you take. Once you get saved, the way you profess to the world you've been saved is baptism. We're going to be baptizing Christmas Eve. I want to encourage you at our Christmas Eve service to go out to the lobby. If you've been, you may say, I've already been saved. I've not been biblically baptized. Let me tell you this. If you've been saved, give me one reason you could give God why you should not be biblically baptized. Just, I'd like to know it. I've never heard one yet. So if you've never been biblically baptized, I'm going to ask you to go to the lobby and say, hey, I, I've trusted J Jesus, but you know, I, I've never been biblically baptized. I've, I've got sprinkled when I was a baby. Or I've never even gotten wet. But I need to follow Christ in biblical baptism. And then let them know, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, Christmas Eve, we'll baptize you. It'd be a great Christmas gift to give to the Lord. And then it may be some of you have been coming for a while and you say, I've been saved, I've been baptized, but I'm, I'm not enrolled here. I'm not in, a member here. I'm not a part of the army here. Well, it's time for you to put on the uniform and go to work, serve with us, get in community, worship, disciple, serve, sin. So maybe you need to go out to the lobby and to that table and say, hey, I'd like to be a part. I want to join this church today. If you're watching online right now, you need to make one of those decisions. Maybe you need to, you got, you, maybe you've trusted Christ today. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to get out of your house and get off the computer and get back in church, and this is the church. Whatever decision you've got to make, if you'll just do one of two things, if you'll either go to crosspointchurch.com slash decision or text Jesus to 678-255-2566. Either one of those numbers or that website. There will be people waiting to hear from you, and we'll help you take that next step with the Lord. Now, there are people that you know. They're not here today. They might have come had we invited them, but we didn't. So your assignment this week, and we'll talk more about it in a minute, is go to your one. Who's your one? Who's your one that needs that redeeming faith? Who's that one that needs that resilient hope? And this week, make a connection with them. Father, I think about one right now, my one, just one. His initials are GR, you know who he is. Lord, I pray that as I've reached out to him before and I'll reach out to him again, that he would come to know that 
redeeming faith, that resilient hope that resides in you. Thank you again for this message. Thank you again for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.